Welcome, you're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. This is your host, John Martellero. And this week, my guest is novelist Christopher Moore. Christopher, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me, John. For the listeners, Christopher Moore is the author of, by my count, 17 novels, including Lamb, Practical Demon Keeping, The Serpent of Venice, The Stupidest Angel, and Noir, to name a few. His latest novel, Shakespeare for Squirrels, will be released May 12th. Before publishing his first novel, Practical Demon Keeping, in 1992, Chris worked as a roofer, a grocery clerk, a hotel night auditor, an insurance broker, a waiter, a photographer, and a rock and roll DJ. I want to ask you about that, too. Sure. So that sounds just like the perfect background to become a novelist. But first, as I do, I want to ask the guest about growing up. Was writing something that was fascinating to you when you were growing up, or did it happen much later? Um, I think I found out I was good at it pretty early. Um, you know, like 11 or 12 years old, I just would write s- stories for school and they'd be a little bit more entertaining than what other kids were writing. And, um, I think a large part of that is I was an only kid and my dad, um, read a lot. He was a cop, a highway patrolman, but he read a book a day, a novel a day. And so from the time, even before I could read, there was always, there were always books in the house. My dad's day off, he always went to the library, brought home seven books or more, and then, you know, brought me a pile of books even before I could read. So I sort of got the whole narrative structure by osmosis, I think. And then in Fifth and sixth grade, I sort of became obsessed with reading Mad Magazine, and I read oh, same here. <laughs> all of I could, all I could get hold of, and then my my friends brought the old uh, the old uh, uh, editions from their that their brothers, their older brothers had saved. So I, I was sort of going back into the mid '60s and seeing all the parodies that they'd done. So I sort of got a dose of satire, and so anyway, that that. I found I had some talent for it early on. I think when I was about 15, I decided I was going to be a writer. And then I think about 16, um, my my father and everybody in Ohio, you know, said there's no such thing as writers, you know, um, because you can't make a living at it. And, and so I sort of uh, went toward other fields that I thought I could actually make a living at because I didn't want to be a journalist or any of that. I just wanted to write fiction. And, Mad um, Magazine, early signs of a disturbed personality. <laughs> it could be, but it, but it was great training for me. Um, did you read science fiction? Because I detect a certain Harlan Ellison-esque nature of your writing because he was kind of like a street guy and then he started writing macabre science fiction. Your writing reminds me of Harlan Ellison. Well, I think part of it, um, I, I came to Harlan later in life. I, I Certainly there was science fiction was very influential on me early on. Jules Verne when I was 11 or 12. And then I read Ray Bradbury's uh, stories, uh, S's for Space and R's for Rocket, when I was in uh, sixth grade, I think. And I think that was the first time I was aware that there was somebody behind the narrative making this happen. I started thinking, you know, realizing there was such a thing as story structure. And because in the short story, you can sort of see it right there in front of you. And um, I guess it was probably 20, 25 years old. I, I discovered Harlan Ellison. And what I learned from him was narrative voice. And because I think what I write is comedy, uh, comedy almost always has to have a strong narrative voice. You have to trust what you're saying and you have to just uh, you know, step up and not disappear. Like a lot of suspense writers, they want the author to be uh, 
invisible. And I didn't. And so I think that that was a great discovery. And I think for a couple of years, I really idolized uh, Harlan Ellison and and um, emulated him a little bit. So so certainly there was some influence there in bringing narrative voice to the fore and, and making it, uh, you know, up front. Um, and then, you know, as, as time went on, I, I think... Uh, I, I Harlan didn't. I I don't think did a great job at at uh, uh, synthesizing real life and writing. I, he he spent a lot of his time really angry, and and fighting people and suing people and and yeah, in in what in in what would be you know Twitter beefs now. But and and I just decided you know very early on in my career that I just didn't want to live life that way. You know, so you, you take from everybody that you admire, you take what you can use and you leave, you know, what you can't. And, and that was the, but there was, you know, keen eye on that. You definitely, there was some influence from Harlan Ellison. You were, know, there, or, were there people in your immediate life besides your dad, like teachers or friends who influenced you or was it mostly remote in the sense of, you know, science fiction writers? Uh, probably mostly remote. I had a couple of teachers that, that encouraged me, but you know, you can't, uh, it's, it's often, you know, people say, well, did you, you know, were you nurtured by your teachers and they can't teach, they can't teach to somebody like me, you know, because I'm one out of, you know, I'm the, uh, I'm one out of two professional writers that ever came out of my hometown. And the other one is the guy that wrote the book for most of Sondheim's plays. I can't remember his name offhand. And I didn't even know he existed growing up. But um, it's, it's so you can't teach to somebody like me. You can't teach a class of, of 30, you know, eighth graders to be a professional writer. So so most of my influence came from the outside. You read Harlan yeah. Ellison until your brain explodes. And then one day you sit down on a computer and you start writing. So somewhat. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think if I had discovered Harlan earlier on, it might have been um, not good. Not good for me. I think that I I discovered him in my twenties and uh, had a you know I was a little more grown up and and didn't have quite the need to be the angry young man by that time. So did you head to college with an idea of being a journalist or an author or a novelist or what? What happened there? Um, I think, uh, again, growing up in Ohio, everybody has this, this uh, really almost insane uh, work ethic, you know, sort of this Lutheran Calvinist background where you have to, everything uh, redounds to whether you're working hard enough. And, uh, and it, so early on, you know, when I was 15 or 16, and um, I realized that there was no stopgap for being a fiction writer. You couldn't get out of high school or even college and and plan on making a living as a as a novelist or a short story writer at that time. And um, so I decided I wanted to. I bought a old used Nikon that had been sold by the local newspaper, and I got into photography. And I had a friend who taught me how to use it and how to you know work in a darkroom and stuff like that. And uh, so I thought, well, that's what I'll go to school for. So I went to Ohio mm. State a little bit, and you know, because there's levels of ascent, I guess. You know, you can work for Cosmo or National Geographic as a photographer, but you can also work, do weddings, or work at the portrait studio at Sears. You know, so there was some level of actually being able to make a living. Whereas I didn't see that with writing fiction, and so I went to school. Uh, I went to Ohio State for about a year and got my prereqs, and then I went to Brooks Institute of Photography and. Uh, in Santa Barbara and flamed out fabulously um, after, I think, six months. And um, and then 
did jobs to pay rent for a few years until I was in my mid twenties. And, and, uh, I had a girlfriend who said, uh, there's this writer's conference in, here in Santa Barbara, and you said you used to write when you were a kid. You should go to that. And so I went, and I they at that time, you needed to write a couple of stories and submit them. And um, I got a lot of positive feedback there. And then I met a bunch, you know, I met 200 people who all, also thought it was a completely legitimate thing to stay up until two in the morning reading or writing you know, mm. stories. And, and so, you know, it was a lot of validation there. That's and, good and, that that happened to you because the camaraderie of a group can be strong influence. It was, it was really, uh, just realizing that it was a valid thing to do, I think was the biggest part of that. And then having people say, look, you've got talent at this, you know, because you, you're so, uh, there's, a, there wasn't, hadn't really been a lot of reinforcement on that. And, and it was, I found it a challenge and I, I met a woman there and we ended up living together for five years, something like that. And that flamed out spectacularly. But, but that was, uh, I think the, uh, come to Jesus moment for me was, was I was in my mid twenties and I was an insurance broker and making good money and hating every day of my, of my life. And, uh, and so I started making an effort to go toward what it was going to take to drive a long blue Cadillac. I did not. <laughs> but, and, and you're referring to the character in, uh, in uh, coyote blue, yes, but I uh, am. <laughs> a, a lot of the, a lot of the background of those characters was from my experience of being an insurance man in Santa Barbara. Uh, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. We'll get into some of your books in a few minutes. At what point did you decide you were going to try your hand at a novel? And did you have a novel in you that didn't work? that didn't pan out, that kind of failed with the agents and stuff? Or did you sell your first attempt? Well, I didn't finish novels. I had other novels that I started, and I would uh, rewrite them, you know, and I'd have these fantastically polished chapters one and two, and I never would get to chapter three. And um, and so having made all those different mistakes, I, I sort of uh, basically destroyed my life when I was about 30. And, um, I, and, you know, my relationship fell apart. I was drinking too much, yada, yada, yada. And, um, and I decided, okay, I've got to finish a book or it's not going to work. And everybody all along, they tell you, you've got to write every day. And of course I hadn't done that. I had done everything, but that, you know, and established discipline. So I, uh, I set out to write every day. I wrote a journal you know, every day for six months. And did it didn't you start have... off on a computer or did you start off by hand no, or typewriter? No, by hand, by hand. And this was, this was about 1989. And so I had a sort of a nice hard bound journal and I would go to this, I, I lived in a friend's basement and I, there wasn't room for a desk in my room. So I would, uh, I would get up every morning and I would drive to this little coffee shop in town and sit at the counter and write in my journal and read and, you know, sort of cataloging, you know, whatever, the equivalent of self therapy was. And, and, uh, and meanwhile, as I was writing in this journal, I would make notes in the margin for what I was going to put into the novel. And then after I had done that every day without missing for six months, I started to write the book and, um, so it took practical me, demon keeping. Yeah. Which I wrote the entire thing out by hand, um, on like wow. big pads. And, um, and then, uh, when I finished it, I realized, you know, I knew enough about the business to know that I needed to, put it into a computer and I, uh, didn't really have the money for a decent computer. And a friend of mine who owned the diner and we'd become friends by that time. He, he said, well, I'm, what are you looking for? And I said, I'm looking for a PC that has a, you know, a hard drive and et cetera, et cetera. And, and he said, well, 
you know, I have one that I'm getting rid of. And, and it was, I think five, he wanted $500 for it. And I just didn't have $500. So he said, why don't you take it and write your book? And then when you, uh, when you get the money, you can pay me. And so Is I, this Microsoft word, pray tell. Uh, I think this was at that point, WordStar. Uh, yeah. Cause I had learned WordStar in four years. Yeah, I had I had learned WordStar on an old K-Pro computer, one of those portable forty-pound things. Oh, I remember that, those. Yeah, it had like a seven-inch screen, mm-hmm. and and so and as as you know, everything was commands then. There was no such thing as a mouse interface. So, yeah, I wrote the whole thing on WordStar and printed it out on a on a Daisy Wheel printer. It took about eight hours to print it. One and of the it, things you do that I've noticed is you have a remarkable sense of continuity. You know, every movie has a continuity editor to make sure there's no snafus of sequencing or terminology or whatever. Mm-hmm. I've noticed a remarkable sense of continuity and consistency and the callbacks in your writing where I go, oh, yeah, it's a callback to that. And he got that connected right in, in the right order and everything worked out. Are you aware of that skill? I think that just comes from writing books beginning to end. Um, I, I don't, I, I will write scenes that will plug in later on because I do write comedy. And so that sort of comes from something that is, um, inspired and I may write a, a bit of dialogue and so forth and plug it in later. But because I write books in a linear manner from beginning to end, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, um, it's not that hard to do continuity. So I'm, and, and because I'm writing comedy callbacks are natural, but I also, um, my stuff is really character based. I mean, and that's that's not an observation from the outside of it's 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 intent. You know, I I try to make my my work character based. Are you saying that you don't write uh, a synopsis of every chapter, of all thirty three chapters, and then fill in the blanks? Do you kind of write and see where the story goes? Some people kind of just wander through it and see how it evolves, and some people kind of plan every detail of the book right through the end. No, I, I sort of I have an idea on a timeline basis of, um, and especially with practical demon keeping, I sort of knew they were going to solve the problem at the end of it, and I didn't really know what was going to happen um, along the way. So I would maybe stay ahead of myself about five scenes, and oh, and, uh, and living and, dangerously. <laughs> and I would, just, I you know, and as I said, I was writing on a, um, I was writing on a on by hand. So I would just put notes in the margins and go back and look for what I was going to do. But I would stay about five scenes ahead of myself and, and, um, outlining really became something I did later on. Uh, did you when ever I, graduate to a Mac? Yeah, I started using Macs in about 2007, I guess. And, um, for, for, I liked taking pictures. I had, I had stayed with that and I was starting to travel quite a bit and I wanted to do those like comic book captions on my pictures, and the pro- the only programs that did that were working on Macs. Comic Sans type font. Uh, no, 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 not the font. The the like little thought thought bubbles and speaking oh, bubbles. Oh, okay. So you could turn you know your photographs into like comics, and um, and that was something that I was doing, and I you know posting them on like MySpace or whatever was the thing in 2006 or 2007. So and I had bought my uh, my girlfriend a Mac a few years before that when she got a a Nikon digital SLR just to you know sort of transparently process photos. So yeah, I did. I moved to Mac in 2007, and and. Uh, 
I still use a PC for financial stuff because Quicken has never been able to write, write a program that works on a Mac decently. I know. I um, know. So, so I've maintained this sort of ridiculous, you know, appendix um, vestigial limb of of PC just to run games and Quicken. And um, but it's okay. all. We'll forgive you for that as long as you think yeah. and compose on a Mac. Everybody applied now. Yeah, He's a Mac I, guy. The other yeah. guy is a Mac guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I and I, uh, you know, and I used the different tools um, that that you would think. I I, I write on in I, I write a manuscript in Ma- Microsoft Word because that's still the standard in the industry. Sure. And um, but, uh, but you, you mentioned know, before the show that you might be using, say, Scrivener. I have used Scrivener. I use Scrivener as an outline tool. Yeah, it's a great than, tool for managing plot and characters. Yeah, that the whole way they put a manuscript together is not how I write, so it's not useful for me that way. You know, I need uh, my books basically. If you lift it out, say three chapters when I'm working on it, that's how it's going to look when it goes into print. Where Scrivener sort of has the idea that you piece everything together um, at the end and, and the way you would compile a program, and that works for friends of mine. It just it doesn't work for me. I'm I need you know I like the card view in Scrivener where you can move a scene around and and sort of take events out of it. And 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 I I use probably the card view in Scrivener, and I wrote a a script. Um, in, in Scrivener rather than in Final Draft, which and it worked quite well. For, I think it was Scrivener. Maybe it was. Uh, maybe it was. Uh, there's another sort of uh, open source Mac program for script, and I can't think of what it what it's called now. Cirex or something like that. But I use Scrivener to to um, outline the scenes. Okay, well, I have to take a break now. We've kind of run long in the first segment, and uh, we have to hear a word from our sponsor. So, folks, I'm chatting with novelist Christopher Moore, and we'll be back in 60 seconds. Stay with us. Hello there, all you fabulous background mode listeners. I'm Charlotte Henry with the Mac Observer, and I just want to say a few words about how you can support all the things we do. If you're thinking about buying something from Apple, Amazon, or Macmore, simply go to the Mac Observer's homepage, where we have a section called Support TMO. Or you can just enter www.macobserver.com forward slash Apple Store, all one word, and that will take you to our special page for Apple and all our other affiliate partners. If you make a purchase from one of our partners this way, the Mac Observer receives a small compensation for sending business their way. Pretty cool, right? And even better, you don't pay a penny more. This small fee from our affiliates helps us continue to bring you TMO's daily news, reviews, tips, how-tos and podcasts just like this one. So, the next time you're thinking about an online purchase, please do come to TMO's homepage and support the Mac Observer. Thanks. Back to you, John. We're back. I'm chatting with novelist Christopher Moore. In this second half of the show, I want to ask you about some of your books. Um, you've written, is it correct, 17 novels yeah, that, so far? Yeah, that's right, 17. And what has been your favorite book of all of them, and what has been your best-selling book? Oh, let's see. Um... Probably overall, not when it hit the stands. Overall, my best-selling book has been Lamb. My favorite is it, it's. I, I have a, a a well-worn joke that I talk about. Picking your favorite is is like picking your favorite child. Is you know, you, your first one is special mm-hmm. to you, and then you know the the first of a different gender, and then of course the one that you lock in the attic and don't let anybody see. <laughs> um, 
But uh, I, I think the one that, uh, you know, Lamb is sort of what's considered my magnum opus. When anybody has heard of me, that's what they've heard. And that's the story of Jesus as told by his, his sort of apostate friend, Biff. Um, you know, the comic retelling of the life of Jesus. But uh, the one that I, I think I'm most proud of is Sacre Bleu, which is um, this, it's a murder mystery. And it's basically the murder of Vincent Van Gogh as solved by, you know, painters who went to school with him, you know, like uh, Toulouse-Lautrec. And it's set in Paris in 1891 and sort of follows the evolution of the uh, Impressionist movement in Paris. And it is about the color blue um, because I thought that might be a challenging thing to do. And since I'm, I was able to pull that off, I'm, I'm pretty proud of it. So that's right today is my favorite. Tomorrow, ask me another question. My favorite book from you is The Stupidest Angel. I've oh, been yeah. reading that every December for about the last 10 years and marking up the hardback with all the cool little phrases and humor and characters and stuff like that. And this Christmas, I finished uh, Stupidest Angel again for about the 10th time. And then I thought, you know, I need to read some of these other books. So I got into practical demon keeping, and then I learned about the Pine Cove trilogy, the follow-on, The Less Lizard of Melancholy Cove, which is extremely funny. A great book, and the characters from The Stupidest Angel are developed in those three books, mostly in Less Lizard. Right. Which is never referred to by name in the book. It's Steve or Steve Beast, right? Mm -hmm. Tell me about the evolution of that stupidest angel and uh, how you conceived it and what it's all about. Uh, the stupidest angel was a pure act of mercenary writing. I was at, I was speaking for the, I had just finished my book Fluke, which is about marine mammal biologists and whales. And um, I was speaking at the HarperCollins sales conference where all the salespeople and all the executives and all the, you know, the CEO and the president are there and, and they present what's going to be in their catalog for the next season uh, at these meetings. And I was their keynote. And um, during the break, one of the national salesmen for a uh, for one of the big national accounts, you know, I think it was Borders, and basically how that works at a at a publisher is there's one person and they handle all of the sales to those big national accounts, and that was the guy. And he came up and he said, "You know, Chris, uh, you should write a Christmas book." And I said, "Yeah," and and he said, "Yeah, we could sell the crap out of that." <laughs> and uh, and I said, "Yeah, what should it be about?" And he said, "Oh, I don't know, Christmas in Pine Cove." And because he was had always been a big advocate and a big fan of my work, and so um, and so I started thinking about it, and and uh, I just came up with this idea that you know, working backwards from what you saw on the on the shelves at Christmas time, because that was the whole thing is that you wanted to sell a bunch of them, and they were all these undersized little hard covers, and they were in Christmas colors. I designed the cover actually for for Stupidest Angel before I wrote a word of it. And um, I took characters that I had already written and put them in a setting that I had already written. And I was under a multi-book contract where I had deadlines. And sometimes, you know, I would write shorter books because I could write them more quickly. And uh, and Stupidest Angel was one of those. And, and uh, you know, it had to be under... $15, I think, because that was what the office secret Santa limit was on gifts. And um, so people would go, what's the stupidest angel about? And I go, it's about $15. Um, it's a Christmas tale of horror. Yeah. What, yeah. Is, what has been the reaction to that uh, slant on a Christmas story? 
I think a, a lot the same issues. A, a lot of people read it every year at Christmas time. They love it. They love the convention of it. It's it's sort of like a Hallmark Christmas movie turn. <laughs> Yeah, and um, and uh, they, you know, and it's it's got all the elements of a, you know, it's got a Christmas angel and it's got a little kid and it's got wish yeah. fulfillment and it's got, you know, Santa and and then it has these wild characters like a, it has a, a miracle, a beer, yeah, it has a miracle and it has a, a B movie queen who's not quite sure she's not in B movies anymore and it's got a, a town sheriff who's a little bit of a pothead and crow. Yeah, and, uh, and then some of the characters, which you probably don't even know this, are from other books. Um, Tucker Case, the helicopter pilot, who's working for the DEA, and his fruit bat Roberto are from the Island of the Sequin Love Nun. I got to go and, read that too. I got to read them all, actually. So. And the and the angel is from Lamb. Um, oh. Yeah, so he's the he's the angel that raises Biff from the dust of Jerusalem so he could tell the story of of Christ. So those characters have appeared in other books before, and that was what Stupidest Angel was going to be, was sort of an introductory um, Christopher Moore 101, this is what you get when you read this guy. Is it one of your bigger sellers even today? It does pretty well, but because, you know, bookstores won't stock it Except at Christmas time, it it doesn't keep pace with the other ones. I mean, oh. initially, initially it did, and it's never gone into into paperback. And some people are just they don't even care if you can get it for nine dollars. They're not going to buy it in hardcover because they don't do that. But it's it's sold pretty well. It's been pretty popular, and and like and it builds an audience over the years because you know parents are now giving it to their children and so forth. Speaking of Hallmark movies, callback, callback. Um, has there been any interest by any studio in making it into a movie? Have you ever tried to push that? And I saw the blog this morning where people were proposing different actors for the different characters. It's it's an indication that it would be a lovely movie. It's been down. It's been pretty far down the road toward being a film a couple of times. Um, it it uh, a pretty named director. Um, took it down a road and got involved with Stan Winston, who was, you know, ran his own special effects house and they, and they went pretty far with it. And I can't even remember where they hit a wall, but they, they, they hit a wall and they let the option expire on it. And, um, and then another, uh, another director picked it up and had it in development for gosh, like 10 years. Hmm. And I mean, and he had gotten it to the point where they had, hired a caterer and and rented studio space so it was that close to being made he had actors and everything lined up to make it and and his financing which he had gotten russian financing i guess and and that fell through on him literally weeks before they were supposed to start shooting um so so it's 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 always you know i i now have the rights back and it's you know there's always interest in it there's some guys that want to use the whole pine cove um the three books as a basis for a series and they they're pretty serious players, but I don't, I'm not one of these authors who goes on social media and says, I have some news for you, but I can't tell you about it right now because the number of Hollywood deals I've had that have fallen through (laughs) are, I mean, dozens, literally dozens. Um, and it's just not something that I want to get people pumped about because I realized early on that I have no control over it. So I'm just going to take the money and go write another book. Okay, well, that's a nice lead-in to your next book that I want to talk about, and that is one of my favorites, Noir, 
I read about that in the LA Book Review by a fabulous author uh, who reviewed it. What was his name? Robert Allen Pepinchak mm-hmm. wrote a, just a terrific review of noir and it made me want to go read it right away. And I did. I finished the book. It's fantastic. Tell us Thank a little you. bit about that and how you researched the setting. Well, I, I basically wanted to set it in um, uh, in 19. 19- I picked 1947 almost arbitrarily. I was going to set it in um, San Francisco sometime post-war, and uh, and I had originally conceived of this setting for a different book. But you know, in the the way the publishing works, sometimes I ended up using it for this, and I had already done the research. But um, the city of San Fran- and I lived in San Francisco at the time, so um, the city of San Francisco in 1947 was this really dynamic. You know, social mixing pot of, you know, there had been these extreme demographic changes in the city during the war, you know, where the African population, African-American population went from, you know, like uh, 7,000 to 35,000 and whole neighborhoods because of the shipbuilding um turned African-American, but the Japanese were shipped off to internment camps. So the entire Japanese, uh, what was Japantown turned into an African-American neighborhood. And, and then the Japanese returned and you had this, this interface between this whole African-American neighborhood with jazz and, you know, these great jazz clubs and these Japanese people who had been living, you know, their life, you know, most of them born in the U S but, you know, nevertheless, the U S we shipped them off to internment camps during the war and, and, you know, women who had been working in factories coming home. So it was just a dynamic time to write about. And plus I always liked the sort of tough guy talk. And that was a big draw for me. And, you know, from the old 1940s movies. So this is a film noir derivative. It really is. And, and, um, I don't know if you're aware of an author called, uh, named Damon Runyon. His, his most famous work is he, his books are the basis for guys and dolls, the musical. And so he wrote about all these, uh, Manhattan, uh, criminal types and in their own vernacular from about 1920 to the late 1940s. And I, I, they're hilarious stories. And I just sort of wanted to write these guys that spoke their own lingo and yet put them in this situation where they're all dealing with um, sort of a cross-cultural interface for the first time in their lives. Um, And my main character, uh, Sammy Tiffin, grows up in in, um, Idaho. And, you know, like in the whitest town in the world. And so when he's, you know, ends up being put on a, a welding crew for at Hunter, um, Hunter's Point, which was a naval shipyard, and he's put on an all black welding crew. And, and uh, because the boss doesn't like him and, and thinks that he's punishing him. And so he becomes friends with us. And it becomes, and his best friend is, uh, is a guy who works in one of the clubs in, in Chinatown, a, a Chinese American guy. So it was, that was the, the draw for me was this sort of dynamic that was going on during, during the, the uh, post war period in San Francisco. And Herb Cain was a, re- is a really famous columnist who wrote, um, and for the San Francisco Chronicle for uh, almost 60 years, I think. And so he was always the man on the street. He was San Francisco's Walter Winchell. And so he he was an easy source to research because he would tell you what was going on in Chinatown in 1947. And all of his articles were available at the library or in collections of books that he 
he published it. He published two in 1947. So a lot of the research was looking at maps, looking at photographs. There's a great archive at the San Francisco Library that's also available online of San Francisco in the period. The, the streets look then like they look now, basically a lot of the, because the whole city had been built in the turn of the century after the earthquake, you know, a lot of that was still standing and still is. So, uh, you know, the streets I was writing about are the streets I lived on. This is a very visual book. The scenes in this book stand out to me like I watched a movie. And that's the way a good reading should go, creating the visual images in your head as you as you read. It's a stellar book in that regard. You do something interesting that I think is a kind of a cool trick. I detected that you switched back and forth between first person and third person in this book, something that's very courageous, something that the experts tell you not to do. But uh, you get away with it, and you get away with it beautifully. Well, I, it's it's something that I think takes us a fair amount of confidence, but there's no rule. There's no rule that says you can't do that. I remember being at a writer's workshop one time and, and saying after somebody wrote a story, I said, they switched point of view in the middle of the story. And, and the teacher, who was a very good teacher named Shelley Lowenkoff, um, who taught, taught at USC, the professional writing program, he said, did that bother you? And I said, well, <laughs> And, and I said, well, no, you know, because you're in that situation at the workshop where you're, you're saying something because you want to go, I know this, I know this thing, and I have to share yeah. that I know this thing. And and it was, and he basically pointed out it, it, with that sort of blasé comment, it was like, there's no rule against that. <laughs> there isn't. If it works, yeah. it works. Yeah, and, it and, works very nicely. And the, and the problem with getting into, a, you know, a third-person limited or a third-person uh, uh, omniscient and trying to maintain that point of view without any switches is you end up with these stupid uh, scenes where she regarded herself in the mirror and thought, not bad for an older babe, stuff like that. You always mm. have people stop, stopping, you know, because they're trying to filter everything through this limited third person point of view. Don't tell me, uh, show me. Yeah. And the problem with first person is there's no danger to the narrator because you know they made it out. Um, but yeah, if you could right. go into and, and you don't know what anybody else is thinking or what uh, what's happening in other places, um, you know, in the way that the detective writers, you know, Raymond Chandler and, and those guys from the 1930s and 40s would deal with it is that the point of view character, the first person narrator, the detective would get knocked out. He'd get sapped. And then when he came to his plucky assistant would fill him in on everything that had been happening all over the city. And my solution was just make up a third person narrator and throw him in. And it, nobody's, I think you're the first person that book's been out a couple of years. That's, that's even noticed it. Um, and I think the first time I saw that done successfully was James Lee Burke. And he, you know, you don't call attention to it. You just go, oh, well, this isn't working anymore. And I think maybe Stephen King does with Christine. Um, I think he got to a point in Christine where he went, oh, my goodness, you know, this isn't going to work in first person anymore. And so he changes it about, I think, a third into the book. And and I, I think I read somewhere that that was a decision made on the fly that sort of, you know, he was into the book and went, oh, this isn't going to work. Um, I just don't have any problem with it because it's not, people aren't reading me to find out how to structure a novel. Um, They're just enjoying the heck out of themselves. Yeah. And, you know, if I'm doing my job, they're not going to stop and go, hey, wait a minute, that's just wrong. And sometimes writers, writing students will. And, you know, and I'll tell them what I tell you is, you know, if it works, it works. If it doesn't work, it needs to be changed. I'm going to ask you to divulge a secret. 
Is there going to be a noir too? Yeah, I'm working on it now. Excellent. Excellent. I can't wait. Me either. (laughs) All right. Well, we're coming to the end of the show. I have time for another question. Sure. Uh, Your latest novel, which is going to be out May 12th, as I mentioned before, is Shakespeare for Squirrels. I'm not much of a Shakespeare reader. Can you kind of fill us in on Shakespeare for Squirrels, what it's about, the origins, and kind of get us uh, enticed into it? Sure. I I invented this character, Pocket of Dog Snogging, who was a fool, a, a royal fool um, that I, uh, my book Fool, which came out in like 2008, is the comic retelling of King Lear from the fool's point of view. And he's this little smart ass, petite, like built like a jockey, acrobatic guy that, that sort of being the least powerful character on stage, he still manages to manipulate all these royals and so forth. And so I wrote a second book, The Serpent of Venice, with him in it, where I did Othello and The Merchant of Venice. And then this book is A Midsummer Night's Dream from the point of view of a pocket who washes up on the shores of this mythical Greece that's the setting for Midsummer Night's Dream. And he solves a murder mystery. Um, dealing with all the supernatural characters that are in Midsummer Night's Dream and fairies and the the goblins and the kings and all that stuff and and so that's basically the story is just somebody who is uh, uh, I'm trying to think of a non of of a of a family friendly word for he he ends up being the guy who the smartass who takes on everybody and and says the thing that you always wanted to say during a Shakespeare play and. Um, and uh, the 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 dialect in it is Shakespeare. In other words, it's not as hard to read as Shakespeare. It's me throwing in the uh, these and thous to make it sound Shakespeare. But for an average modern American, it's not hard to read. You know, right. you don't need, you don't need to read it with a translation because that yeah. would defeat the purpose. You know. Well, as Matthew McConaughey says, "All right, all right." Thank you very much for taking us through your career and some of the books that you've written. It's been fabulous. Thank you for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Tell the listeners how they can contact you if they wish. Um, You can find me at the author guy, all one word on Twitter. Um, I'm at chrismore.com. Although right now that link is a little, that contact link is a little wonky. Um, and uh, I'm on Facebook, but I'm, I have a fan page there that's just Christopher Moore. But I don't interface that much except for announcements for books and events and so forth, simply because it's sort of become this fever swamp of people who have hurt feelings that I, I kind of got tired of, uh, <laughs> of having to assuage people's hurt feelings and confusion. So I just make announcements and say hello occasionally. Okay, well, we'll have to close the show here. Thanks, Christopher Moore, for joining me. It's been great. Thank you. Folks, you've been listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. We'll see you again next week.